0: As part of the inaugural Michael J. Zach Grand Strategy Lecture Series here at CNAS, we are hosting a series of podcast discussions on grand strategy, definitions, audiences, and the kinds of debates that we should be having but aren't on American grand strategy. Here's the first. This is Lauren DeYoung-Shulman at the Center for a New American Security. We are here this week to talk about what we don't talk about when we talk about grand strategy. I'm here with the Ever-so-wonderful Kelly Maximin, Vice President for National Security and International Policy policy Programs at Center of American Progress. Susanna Bloom, a Fellow in the Defense Strategies and Assessments Program here at CNES. Uh, Julie Smith, who is the Director of the Transatlantic Security Program at CNES. And Emma Ashford, a Fellow at the Cato Institute. Welcome, ladies. I know you guys are all huge fans of Grand Strategy. So thank you for being here today. You can't see, but there's laughter here in the room. (laughs) (laughs) So conversations about grand strategy tend to really deter those who should actually be participating. Um, There is either a high barrier to entry for the invitations or even wanting to initiate such a debate. And as a result, the discussion on grand strategy is often really isolating or isolated um, amongst uh, high-level academics or people pontificating in the National Security Council, but does not end up having a lot of relevance to folks around their kitchen table or or even folks out on the implementation side of national security policy. Um, But some might argue that we should have it that way, that we should be discussing grand strategy in more detail, or in more levels of understanding outside of the ivory tower and more in the the practical side of policy implementation or even just in the practical side of what it means to to think about America's role in the world. So before we dive into uh, some more specific recommendations, I wanted to talk about first, what on earth do we mean by grand strategy? Emma, can you kick us off?
1: Why do I have to start? (laughs) So, I mean, so, so there's a technical definition of grand strategy, right? It's the it's how a state sets up its aims and then converts those aims into practice by using all the tools of national security. Um, but typically what we mean, I think, when we say grand strategy is more the really high level debates that we have about whether the US should be more or less involved in, in the world, what, what aspects we should be more or less involved in. Um, and we basically tend to divorce that almost entirely from practice. So I think that technical definition is a little bit different than what we actually mean when we talk about it.
2: But Kelly, why does this turn everybody off when you say grand strategy? Well, usually when I think of grand strategy, I think of you know back smoky rooms filled with old white guys staring at maps and dividing up the world into pieces. And I think that is what intimidates a lot of people from having this conversation. But I think actually grand strategy, to, to Emma's point, is about fundamentally a set of strategic choices that a nation makes to pursue its objectives. And I think that is where the rubber meets the road. I think there's a lot of um, sort of disappointment in grand strategy these days, especially from uh, folks outside the United States. I think they look to us to have a great grand strategy, but then when we identify one, they never really like it. I think I would point uh, to the uh, Asia rebalance as one idea. I think that was an actual grand strategy of the Obama administration, but it also pissed off a lot of people in Europe (laughs) Um, because fundamentally it's really about a set of of big choices um, and how you follow through on those choices.
3: But not only did it piss off people in Europe, but the world has a way of not necessarily cooperating with your declared grand strategy. So as a new president, you often walk into the White House with some sort of plan, some vision of what you want to achieve over four to eight years. And for Obama, the emphasis on Asia was front and center. But um, unfortunately, events in the Middle East didn't allow the administration to pursue that, and you can have all the best intentions, but conflicts flare up in different places around the world. You also may not have the resources you need uh, to pursue your grand strategy. And the bureaucracy, oh, by the way, may not even respond the way you want it to to your declared grand strategy. So there are lots of obstacles along the way.
4: I think... um, you know, grand strategy, as Emma points out, is is a country sort of announcing its its aims or objectives. Uh, if that aim or objective is devoid of priorities it's it becomes not a particularly useful thing, right? If your grand strategy is I'm going to be everything to everyone, that doesn't help your own bureaucracy, make choices about where to apply its finite resources, right? And so you sort of end up almost in a no-win with these, like, big declared grand strategies. Either they're useful and they make somebody very upset, or they're unuseful but make everybody feel kind of okay. And and I think to me that's kind of why I react ne- negatively when I when I hear the term. It's almost like a, there's, you know, these big public declarations. It's almost like you can't win.
0: Uh Another term that comes up a lot when we talk about grand strategy is world order, whether it be liberal international order or the US-led world order, or it, order is dissolving in the world. But I, I have to say, other than like, you know watching law and order and listening to judges say it on a regular basis, what does order even mean? Like, what should When people hear that, what should they be interpreting that as when they are, are grasping with grand strategy?
2: I mean, the traditional definition of international order is a set of rules and norms that govern how states interact, right? Um, So sort of post-World War, uh, international order that the United States set about creating was around a set of rules and norms. And I think the definition of international order now, I think, is shifting much more towards, back towards, unfortunately, I think, uh, states governing their own interests in the world trying to generate sort of spheres of influence we're going back to that kind of world. And that's what's, I think, dangerous at this point. But that transition, I think, is happening right now.
1: You know, there's even a debate, mostly among academics, but over whether order is actually a thing, whether it actually exists. Are the features that we describe as the U.S.-led liberal international order, are those things that we have somehow managed to create through our strategy, through our actions? Um, And there's some people that would argue that. Or are those just the facts of the way the world was structured during the Cold War, you know, two blocks of states working against one another after the Cold War, unipolarity? You know, Is this US led international order just how things are now and that'll change in the future? So I think that's a really interesting question we don't ask ourselves enough. Um, from my point of view, though, I also think we should probably question the, the word in liberal in liberal international order because I think that means a lot of different things to different people. If we're talking about economics, if we're talking about Democracy, and so we don't do a really good job of defining these terms.
0: So, Emma, you bring up a good point: uh, the question of agency. How much role does the United States actually have in establishing its grand strategy? Uh, but I also want to ask the question of: um, you know, what does it mean to think about America's role in the world? Uh, roles tend to be something that we talk about in terms of know, an actor getting a role in a play or in a movie or, um, you know, roles that we take within our own offices. But talking about America's role in the world is actually a just an enormous, really complicated question that I think that we you know, say off the top of our heads when talking about how Trump is changing this or how uh, people and allies are changing their perception of America's role in the world without necessarily thinking about what it means and why it matters, Um, So why is it we care about what America's role in the world is, and how should we kind of define those parameters?
3: Well, America has a number of unique attributes that, at least over the last well, if you want to call it recent past of the last 70 years or so, uh, has enabled it to lead the order, lead the set of institutions that we worked with our European allies to build after the end of World War II, and to provide a vision of the way forward collectively among our closest allies. It is often the case that our allies around the world wait to see what the U.S. position is. We have global presence. We have global engagement. We have a network of allies that is unmatched around the world, world world-class military, very dynamic economy, a number of attributes that give us this unique position in the world. The question going forward now is, do we still want to play that leadership role? Does the world first still expect us to sit in the chair? Do they care if we voice our opinion on X, Y, and Z? And so I think that's one thing that President Obama, knowledge that we're not necessarily in decline, but our position on the world stage or our share of world power has altered in recent years particularly since the end of the Cold War and then the second thing is what do the American public what does what does the what's the general public view towards our role in the world right now this is cyclical but right now we're in a, a period of time where the American public seems to have this perception that we are doing too much in the world and Donald Trump's uh, promises to have greater burden sharing with our allies allies and ask the rest of the world to do more and stop being the world's policeman. you know, lines we've heard in our past before, has resonated with the American public. And so it's really two things. One, what does the U.S. president, how does he envision uh, America's role going forward? Does Donald Trump want us to be a leader in NATO, inside the United Nations and other institutions? I'm not sure we know the answer to that. Sometimes it feels like a definitive no. Sometimes it feels like a maybe. Uh, And then the other thing is how how much public support would he have for that, whatever policy he selects, I guess. And then lastly... What are the expectations of our allies around the world? Right now, it seems that our allies have taken note that the United States is, in fact, not providing uh, that traditional leadership role. And some, but not all, would like to see us be a little more assertive. But certainly, there are plenty of other countries around the world that would love nothing more than America to continue on very quietly so that they can fill the void. And by that, I mean China, Russia, and other countries that are quite happy to see the U.S. take a backseat.
4: I have been accused of worshiping excessively at the altar of American exceptionalism, particularly for a lefty. Um, but I like living in a world where we and our like-minded allies and partners make the rules that govern the international system. And I think what we talk about when we talk about U.S. global leadership is, is that exactly. Um, it comes at a price. It's expensive. Leadership costs money. <laughs> um, but but I can guarantee that even those folks who are saying we're doing too much, we need to stop being the world's policemen, are not going to like the alternative, as you described, Julie, of China or Russia stepping into that vacuum and starting to make some rules of their own.
2: Just to pile on to what uh, Susanna just said, I think when we talk about American leadership in the world, oftentimes we assign sort of altruistic aims to that. And I think it's important to remember in the context of grand strategy that we're also advancing our own interests. And for the longest time, you know, the American grand strategy really was a few things. It was to prevent any regional hegemon from emerging in Europe, uh, in Asia, in the Middle East, and to also dominate the Western hemisphere. And so I think the key strategic question for the United States now is that, is that still our core set of aims? Um, I happen to think there's still relevance to that. I think especially uh, in the context of Asia, I think America's role is important in ensuring that countries have freedom of economic choice and freedom of security choice and that they're not coerced by larger powers. I think that there is still a role for us to play in that, but I think that is at the core of the question, I think, that the United States needs to answer going forward.
0: So we've been talking about the definitions of what is a grand strategy, but uh, I think it's also important to discuss for a moment how does a grand strategy emerge? Uh, Because the way we've talked about it in this room is as though it's something that sort of naturally came, could have naturally come about in the post-World War II order, things that um, old white men discuss in back rooms uh, and develop, you know, some lovely strategy document that emerges, or that it just is sort of fully formed out of the head, out of, uh, you know, American great thinkers, and we just all implement it without really ever even talking about it. So how do you develop grand strategy? What is Is there a process? Is there a – do – at the beginning of every administration, do they all get together in the situation room and decide this is what it is? Or have we just sort of like gone forward with this assumption for too long without really grasping what does this even mean for the United States?
2: A lot of bourbon. That's a great idea. Involved.
3: Um,
1: <laughs> I mean, I, I think that's uh, – you know, the, the question is – Where does grand strategy come from? And and grand strategy comes from mostly academics having these very high-level debates that aren't necessarily always um, easy to implement in practice. And so the question of whether an administration, an incoming administration, sort of looks at those uh, debates and then takes some idea of how they would sort of like the world to work, I think is is more the important one. So if we go back and we look at the Obama administration, we see that the the Obama administration actually did um, sort of, Shift slightly away from the embrace of, of a primacy-based ground strategy and they tried to adopt a few more elements of the restrained ground strategy but when it came down to it in practice they found it very difficult to do that um you see the obama administration uh trying to draw down troop levels in iraq ending up pumping them back up because of the rise of isis um you see him getting criticized quite strongly for pursuing diplomacy with iran rather than uh Trying to just say bomb them like the Bush administration might have done, um, and then the pivot to Asia, which basically just didn't happen because all this other stuff in the Middle East came up instead. So, grand strategy is is great, but in thinking about how we actually transition that into practice, it's a lot
0: mess. That leads to my next question on grand strategy implementation and audiences. I think that um, quite frequently we think of grand strategy in terms of external audiences in a lot of cases, but don't necessarily think about it in terms of who is it that's going to have to implement it on the United States side, whether it be departments and agencies or a broader economy. Who and what are the audiences that kind of get left out of that grand strategy debate and uh, what kind of implications does that have?
3: Well, I think... Practitioners really struggle with this whole notion that while they're working for the U.S. government at the State Department or the Defense Department or in the National Security Council that they have the time and the luxury to both develop a grand strategy and to implement one. I mean, when you're in those jobs, uh, particularly you know at a fairly high level, you're running so fast, you literally can't think beyond the next few hours. And I know when Kelly and I in particular were at the White House at the same time, there were efforts, particularly after Obama won a second term, to say, let's step back and think for a minute. We didn't necessarily have to call it grand strategy, but let's think about what our orienting principles, what are we, what the long-term goals that the president would want to achieve over the next four years. And even carving out the time for that to have a high-level group come together in the situation room was nearly impossible Um, because of all the other competing priorities. You're trying to respond in real time to social media, breaking news that hits you like waves every few hours. And so it's a mismatch between the kind of smoky room or the academic ivory tower or whatever you want to call it, the people that have the luxury to sit and think about grand strategy, and then those trying to actually implement a grand strategy. I mean, we knew in the Obama administration the pivot to Asia, rebalance, whatever you want to call it, was kind of a key part of the framework, our strategic framing, but we also weren't able to succeed in implementing that each and every day as because, as I mentioned earlier, the world doesn't always cooperate. So the, it's just the structures inside government, the work pace, kind of how you work. Uh, it, so much is working against you as a practitioner to think in those broad terms. You don't have the time to sit and read big you know, historical volumes and books. You're not reading at all. You're reading the 10 talking points somebody gave you a few hours early. So... The, the structures inside government don't respond and even in cases where you have a beautifully written national security strategy and you're so proud it comes out and it actually lays out some priorities you then have the enormous task of translating that to the folks with the green eye shades and the budgeteers and everybody else what does that mean in practice so we understand you want to put an emphasis on x and not y but how will we then down at lower levels across the bureaucracy turn that into real policies that's, that's a near impossible task.
4: Yeah, I'll, I'll just talk about those those folks, the erstwhile programmers and force managers in the department who, you know, in my experience... The department of Defense. Department of Defense, sorry. Uh, who, in, uh, in my experience, like really, for the most part, are trying their hardest to follow the strategic guidance and to figure out what the strategic guidance is. Um, it's very tough for them sometimes, particularly when the pressures inside the system you know, no one's going to concede that their their pet rock is, you know, one of those low priorities that really doesn't need attention, right? Um, and so, you know, it's not just kind of communicating the guidance to them. It's also providing, you know, top cover at the political level to to make choices about, you know, yes, you're right. We need to fund A over B and B is more important than C. Um, I I think a lot of the time, even when you do have a beautifully crafted strategic guidance document, it's that kind of back end support to the people who are, you know, plugging money into accounts and, you know, building the orders book that tells soldiers where their soldiers, serials, air marines, where they're going uh, is is also a really critical step.
2: I think one uh, underestimated um, audience for American Grand Strategy is actually the American public. And I think uh, grand strategists in the Situation Room and the Green Eye Shades people kind of, I think, tend to discount that, Um, and they really govern uh, the direction of the country. And I think I look back to the election of Barack Obama, was a very decisive sort of anti-Iraq war, we need to, you know, get out of the Middle East vote, um, driven largely by that. Of course, you know, as much as we might not like it, you know, this last election was very much the American people saying you know, we're ready to sort of focus on us. And so I think Trump tapped into something that was real in terms of how Americans think about America first. Um, and I think going forward, you know, in my conversations about what the future of American foreign policy should be, I find some clear generational divides, frankly, over the perception of America's role in the world, um, specifically around like whether or not we should be uh, the global leader. I think it's in part because there's a whole generation of Americans that don't necessarily haven't seen an American foreign policy experiment work in their lifetime. Uh, they, you know, they've only been exposed to 17 years of war, sort of post 9/11. They don't remember Bosnia. They don't remember World War II. They're, they weren't around. So I think there are big generational questions as well. I think among the American public.
0: So your your point about the American public uh, raises a question that I've had for a long time, which is um, how external we, – we talked about the American exceptionalism and how people think about America's role in the world. But how do you, some external audiences, some of our uh, non traditional allies and other foreign partners, how do they see American grand strategy versus – how we might want to view ourselves. Are there, are there audiences in the world who have a less favorable view of Americans' role in the world that we should have been paying more attention to over the last several decades? I think this is
1: one of those places where that difference between what we say our grand strategy is and what we actually do is, is really noticeable. Um, and so if you ask people around the world, if you ask leaders around the world, they will look back on the last two decades of American foreign policy and they won't say that it was a strategy of you know, supporting liberal democracies and trying to make the world a safer place. Instead, they'll say, oh, it was a strategy where the U.S. violated the rules of the international order that it claims to cherish and invaded a bunch of countries and destabilized regions and did all these bad things and just wants to do that. And so I think a lot of other countries view us very much as hypocrites because they look at what we've been doing in practice, not what we actually say that we're doing. And so, to some extent, the grand strategy debate is only as useful as we can actually make it implementable. If if we're not actually doing that, the message we're sending is something completely different.
3: And to the to the extent that America is trying to send a signal to the world that we want to work with our closest allies to uphold certain values, whether it's human rights or freedom of the press or rule of law... Many countries see that as very threatening. So we think it sounds like music and that we assume our friends in Europe welcome that message and see that as a joint mission with us. But clearly, if you're sitting in the Philippines or, you know, pick any country... Uh, out there with an authoritarian leader, they then assume that we're going to impose those values, that we'll take action, that we're going to do something to undermine their leadership, and it can be seen in a very negative light. And um, it's we have to understand that what may sound great to American ears or European ears doesn't necessarily resonate that way uh, around the world. Doesn't mean we shouldn't be saying it. We don't want to stop upholding our values or working with their European allies, you do have to be conscious of the fact that it's read in a very threatening
0: light by other countries around the world. Second to last question. Grand strategies mean nothing without blank.
2: Choices, resources, and personnel. This would be my three. Says the, the Elliot Cohen <laughs> aficionado in the room.
0: Susanna?
4: Yeah, an application of resources that executes whatever the strategy says it's trying to do.
1: That strategy means nothing without an effort to actually implement it. And it means nothing without the honesty to look at what we're actually doing and see whether that really matches up to the principles that we're trying to espouse. So I think if you look at the last two decades of U.S. foreign policy, you can see very much that we have drifted away From a lot of principles that we adhered to during the Cold War, and a lot of those excesses are the things that are coming back to haunt us now in Eastern Europe, with Russia, in the Middle East, with all the interventions. Um, So grand strategy doesn't matter at all if we're doing the wrong things.
0: So, we talked about the, the smoky back room in the National Security Council where old white men are discussing grand strategy. But let, let's say that we had the chance to actually create a real experiment where people at the White House do sit around and debate grand strategy at the beginning of the administration um, or, or at any point in time. What kinds of people would you want in that room? What kind of thought leaders would you want? What kind of information or data would you want to be part of that discussion? Um do you think Jeff Bezos should just run everything or or maybe Elon Musk <laughs> Kelly shaking her head violently <laughs> You, well, Who first, should be there?
3: Well, first of all, you need <laughs> you need historians. I mean, you have to, what we're often missing, I mean, practi- practitioners come in and they just, they start with this clean slate and they're looking forward and rarely looking backwards and they certainly don't often have the time to look backwards. So you want to have people in the room that can provide lots of examples where we've tried X and Y, they haven't succeeded or they have succeeded. Um, but to walk us through kind of what America's experience has been with different, Grand strategies or different tools and approaches, so that 's one aspect you 'd want to have surely some academics um, in the room. You want to have kind of the the graybeards you know people who have been practitioners, but from other eras, um, so they appreciate the challenge of policy making, but they have a little bit of their own historical context. Um, you may want to have like a pollster. I mean, out of curiosity, not that you want that to run your, but it's good to have a little finger on the pulse of kind of what, where America is. Sometimes it surprises you um, and it's not exactly the way you think it is in your head. So there's lots of, you know, a whole combination of folks that you want to have around the table.
2: Well, I think you'd want to have a lot of women. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> diversity of all <laughs> stripes. stripes. Yeah, yeah. certainly yeah. diversity, women. And I think, and just going through the exercises that I'm going through right now in my current job, young people, they just have a fundamentally different perspective on America and the world that I think needs to be accounted for in any sort of future strategy development.
4: I just add to this already excellent list, Economists. Right. I mean, crazy. I I know it's crazy. But in addition to, you know, experts, practitioners in diplomacy and defense historians, you know, these long term economic trends, both our own and in other countries, um, underwrite everything else that may or may not be possible in the national security space. And, and uh, you know, I like there have been so many moments where I'm like, I need an economist. Um, mm-hmm. It would be great to have more of them involved in these conversations.
1: I'm going to demonstrate my own bias here and say that what you actually need in the room, it doesn't really matter what fields they come from, but you need a diversity of opinions. Yeah. So if every single person in that room agrees on the starting point that the U.S. should continue with roughly the same grand strategy that it's had for the last 25 years, the last 70 years, you're not going to get anywhere. You're basically limiting yourself to discussion inside the 10-yard lines. So what you want is people in the room who, even if you're not going to take all of their suggestions, even if you think they're crazy on some things, you want them being there questioning your ideas so that you develop better defenses of them. Um, so for me, I say you need strainers in the room, you need realists in the room, rather than just people that are advocating liberal internationalism.
0: Okay, I'm going to cheat and ask Emma one last question to close this out. So we've talked about primacy, realism, restraint. Um, if you could come up with a term for U.S. grand strategy that is not already being widely circulated, what would it be?
1: Ad hocism. Ad hocism. Perhaps? Okay, that's a good one. We we don't have a consistent grand strategy at the moment. We maybe had one once shortly after the Cold War. We certainly had one during the Cold War. But these things always wander, and I'd say today we just don't have any clear picture of what we're doing. There are strong elements of primacy. There are elements of, uh, frankly, imperialism starting to develop. Um, There are very few elements of restraints. And we just need to start thinking about a more coherent grand strategy.
0: Ladies, the discussion has been grand, as you (laughs) might say. Thank you very much. This wraps up our first podcast for the Michael J. Zach Grand Strategy Lecture Series here at the Center for a New American Security. We look forward to more discussion with you.